dear people. Good to see you all. I am so grateful I get to be here. Thank you, worship team, for that really helpful time of worship. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's it. That's the Christian life, is Jesus in our place, and then Jesus in us living through us for his glory. That's what this is about. You know, the world doesn't need one more celebrity, but man, do we need heroes. We desperately need heroes who are living for something that really matters, living for something that really lasts. So I want to introduce one of my heroes to you tonight that chances are you haven't gotten to meet yet. And his name is Micaiah, and you find his story in 1 Kings chapter 22. So if you have your Bible, please open to 1 Kings. Not sure the last time you were in 1 Kings, but... We're going to spend some time in this great historical book of the Old Testament tonight for just a few minutes together. So I want, I want you to hear the story of this hero. Anybody who thinks the Bible is boring must not have ever read it. I just find it thrilling, and I find it more so every time I read it over again. But I'm going to read 28 verses. Can you hang with that? Can you hang with 28 verses with an attentiveness? That's what I hope for. Let's start this story of this hero of the faith, this one-hit wonder. He shows up here. We haven't seen him before, we don't think. He may have been, back in chapter 20, an unnamed prophet, but we never see him again after this. He's one of those one-hit wonders, like that woman who sang that driver's license song. <laughs> Probably not going to hear from her again. I, I, it's just a hunch. It's just a hunch. I don't know. I could be wrong. She may be the next... Mariah Carey, for all I know, but she's probably one hit wonder. But this one hit wonder in the Bible, you know, you got these in the Bible. They show up, never heard from them before, never hear from them again, but man, do they have an impact. And that's who Micaiah is, much more significant than a musical one hit wonder. Here's his story, 1 Kings 22. Here we go. Let's listen to God's word together. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. So at this point, we have a divided kingdom among the people of God. We've got the, the, the northern kingdom of, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah with two kings now, Ahab in the north and, Judah in the, and Jehoshaphat in the south. So... These two kings get together here. But in the third year, King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us? And we keep quiet, and we do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. So this really important city, Ramoth-Gilead, had been taken over by this king called Ben-Hadad, and he had held on to it. You see, uh, Ahab was a wicked king. Jehoshaphat was a good king, mostly. And, and, and Ahab made a treaty with Ben-Hadad and let this really important city fall into the hands of the Arameans. And that's troubling Jehoshaphat, and he, he wants to do something about this. 
Verse 5, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? And that's fascinating, isn't it? So 400 prophets of God are saying, go to war. You'll be successful. But deep down, Jehoshaphat, this good king, knows that they're not getting a straight scoop from this big number, this 400 prophets. And he says, is there a prophet of Yahweh? Is there a prophet of Yahweh we can hear from? Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, and they say, go, you'll be successful. But listen to the response in verse 8. And the king of Israel, Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, there's one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Here's our man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah the son of Chenaniah, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, with these you shall push the Syrians until they're destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, so he's, he's been in prison for saying bad things about Ahab. And as this messenger goes to Micaiah, he's bringing him out and listen to what he says to him. He says, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of them and speak favorably. Come on, don't be contrary, Micaiah. Go along with the majority here. 400 prophets, you're going to be so outnumbered. Just make it easy on yourself. And everybody, go along with the majority here. But listen to Micaiah's words. But Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, and I think he's sarcastically mocking all the prophets. Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it to the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah says, he tells two parables now. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? And Micaiah said, 
Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, another parable. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on the right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then the spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. <gasps> and he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Amnon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. Micaiah is a hero. He's a man of conviction. He's a man who's basing his whole life on the word of God. He's a man who's willing to have his earthly life completely trashed and end up in prison because he is committed to only saying what the Lord tells him to say. He's not out for some popularity contest. He's not wanting lots of likes on social media. He's not living for the next dopamine hit that makes him feel important. He is living for God and God's truth and proclaiming that to people who hate him for it. This man is a hero. I mean, what a story. These two kings get together and these prophets, the majority of these prophets, these spokesmen for God are saying, go, you'll be victorious. And, and Ahab and Jehoshaphat said, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? And he says, well, there's one guy, but I hate him because he never says anything good about me, but only evil. And Jehoshaphat says, that's the guy I want to hear from. And the messenger says, come on, Micaiah, don't keep yourself in prison. Get yourself out of prison. Do what will be expediently helpful for you. Say what people want to hear instead of the truth. And Micaiah says, I only can say what the Lord tells me to say. Do you see why this man is such a hero, especially in our age? where we desperately need people who know the truth of God, who have conviction about the truth of God, who love the truth of God and commit their lives to it. We live in an age where there is a crisis of truth. I believe the generation that, that young adults represent have a level of compassion that I haven't seen, and I don't think has been seen for a long time in our society. You are an incredibly compassionate people. You'll be, you're willing to go and, and serve people and work with the poor and you love the marginalized and there's a beautiful compassion. But here's my deep concern. It is so often a truthless compassion. It's the idea that love is acts of kindness but not proclaiming truth 
especially when that truth conflicts with the general consensus. Micaiah was willing to go against the majority. He was willing to be a man who was a lone voice. He was willing to be in the minority in what he was proclaiming because he knew it came from the word of God. That's what he was living for, not popularity, not being cool. He was a true prophet of God, not seeking the approval of man, but the glory of God, not living out of fear of man, but a determined, resolute action toward what's true, like Jesus, who set his face to go to Jerusalem and preach truth that got him killed. Like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus who got his face slapped, like Micaiah, the Apostle Paul gets his face slapped when he's telling the truth in front of leaders as well. Getting your face slapped is something that goes with the territory of someone who belongs to Jesus. And we've got to be men and women of conviction if we're followers of Christ. Jehoshaphat wants to hear from Yahweh, from the true God, and Micaiah represents this. Our hero enters into the stage and he's on a mission. And he's not going to compromise what God has called him to because he's in the minority and people are pleading with him to just say what everybody else is saying. He's willing to be a man of conviction and courage, even if it really messes up his immediate life. These prophets, he says, are lying prophets. He's after God's purposes for his life. And he goes back to prison. He gets slapped in the mouth and he goes back to prison. And he looks over his shoulder on his way back to prison and says, mark my words. You're going to go down. And they do. If you go on and read, they fail miserably in this war, in this battle. God provided for them miraculously so many times. But when they go against the word of God, of the man of God, they fail miserably. The truth leads to life. And truth is not determined by the majority. That's the first thing we need to realize, that we live in a democracy and it's it's easy to think that the majority rules, that whatever the majority thinks is true must be true. And you even hear this thing, people say, Christians, you better change the way you think, you better change what you believe and what you teach, or else you're going to be on the wrong side of history. In other words, the majority is going this way, you better get with the majority and be a bunch of jellyfish and go along with the flow. But Christians are called to be dolphins, not jellyfish. We're called to go against the flow, and the flow is going against the word of God. And we've got to be men and women who know the truth of God, who aren't living by the latest opinion polls like too many of our politicians do, but live by the word of God. Even if that means people will reject you, And increasingly, that's the case. I heard someone say that when I was a kid, being a good Christian would get you a job. Today, it may cost you your job. And that may be part of the deal that we need to be ready for. And so we need to be willing to go against popular opinion and realize that Christians are called to follow Jesus no matter what that means. And voices are to be weighed, not just counted, it's been said. It's amazing when you see Nazi Germany start to turn in the evil directions it did, how few Christians and even Christian leaders stood up and took a stand against the flow that where everything was going. It's hard to do that. My son just turned 17 and 
And he, he in many ways, was sort of a typical teenager for the last few years. And, and um, being cool has been very important to him. And, and so, um, so, like, he wouldn't even dress up on on spirit day when you're supposed to dress up in different ways and I would always kid him that oh no just say you're going as an apathetic teenager and that that's your costume right and wouldn't go along with it but in the last like, eight months you know I would say to him for for years now don't just go with the flow be a leader be an example be someone people look to and he's grabbed a hold of it and it's been amazing to see as he initiates meaningful conversations instead of nonsense about the latest, you know, real video that everybody's laughing at now. And there's nothing wrong with that stuff, but our lives get jam-packed with stuff that doesn't add up to anything of lasting importance. And he's decided to be somebody who's going to step out and be a leader. And you know what's been amazing about it? As he's initiated times of Bible study and prayer, among his friends, you know, or all other teenage boys trying to be cool, as he's gotten up at 5.30 in the morning and met a friend to read their Bibles together at the coffee shop before school, as he's initiated another Bible study, it's amazing that all these kids he thought were going to call him corny are thanking him for being willing to be different and be a leader and do what they wanted to do deep down but didn't have the guts to do it. You know, we assume the, the worst of people instead of the best, and if we take leadership and speak truth, I believe the world is dying for truth. It's dying for it. And so we need to be men and women of loving conviction and passion and commitment. Not giving in to this idea that man's the measure of all things or tolerance is the only way and materialism and, and living for just pleasure or just what works or thinking that man's basically good and a message of sin or hell that we've got to pay for our sin is something you should avoid, stay away from. We need more Micaiahs in the world. I preached this sermon years ago, this passage years ago at our church, and a couple was so struck by this guy, they named their son Micaiah Tucker. Um, and he's, he's a young man now, named after this man who's worthy of naming your kids after. Who's telling the truth these days? Who, who's speaking truth and not just trying to fit in? Faith in Jesus means we're reconciled to God, and we've got to realize that being men and women of truth, not just being nice people, is what God calls us to. He didn't just call us to be nice people. Um, here we go. You want to love God? You got to love truth. Look what he calls himself twice in this one verse the God of truth. Look how Jesus refers to himself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You want to love God, the Father, you got to love truth. He's the God of truth. You want to love Jesus, he embodies truth. He personifies the truth. He is the truth as well as the way and the life. You want to love the Holy Spirit? He's called the Spirit of truth, and one of his main roles is to guide us into all truth. That's what he does for us. But this is how so many people are talking more and more these days. This is an influential Christian author who wrote this a few years ago. Listen to what he says. I just want to tune your ears to the way people are talking these days. 
He says this, I think a healthier way of thinking about belief is to think about the kind of lives we choose to live with the words and beliefs we've been handed to us. Perhaps a more important question about whether God is a guy in the sky or the ground of being or the uh, future infinite Trinitarian relationality is what you'll do with your assumptions of what God is or is not. Will you love God? Will you love your neighbor? Maybe these questions are far more important than what you believe about God or your neighbor. Maybe whether or not you do or do not uh, do what Jesus said is more important than the language you use to describe Jesus. Look what he says. I'm not saying the language is unimportant. It is important. I'm just not important enough to divide over. People are more important than ideas. Love is more important than the concept of love. We should never hurt or lessen the humanity of actual human beings because of the language, beliefs, and concepts that their environment and experiences give to them. Now, I know when I read that, it really is ringing solid to you. And some of you are saying, man, that really resonates. That's so true. And there's truth in this because Jesus clearly says, if you're not connecting what you believe to the way you live and the way you love, you're missing the whole point. So there's truth in that. But do you hear what radical, incoherent overstatements he's making? Do you hear it? It's just amazing. I mean, listen to this. We're, we're just used to hearing people talk this way, so we don't even notice it anymore. How about this? People are more important than ideas. What is that sentence? What is that? What would you call that? It's an idea, right? It's an idea. You know, I, I see this T-shirt that people wear sometimes. If it's between being right and being kind, choose kindness. I always want to ask, and sometimes I do, do you think you're right about that? Right? We, we've got these statements we make that sound so profound and have some truth in them, but they unravel, they, they refute themselves. How about this one? Love is more important than the concept of love. I wonder what he means by love. And as soon as you want a meaningful answer to that question, you need some definition for the, you know what you need? Concepts. Concepts. Do you see how self-refuting and nonsensical and incoherent talking this way actually is if you back up and look at it? Right, but people talk this way all the time, and and we've got uh, John, Johnny um, just referred to an Oprahized society. Oprah has taught a whole generation to talk this way, and think this way, and it makes no sense. Right, he's, he's using language to say language is relatively unimportant. Well, then stop talking and just bake cookies for people. I guess I don't know. <laughs> But it's just amazing. This is just not how humans work. Because love and knowledge always go together. Belief and behavior always work together. And this false dichotomy is killing us. Because a lot of people define love in ways that are actually the opposite of love. That's what the Bible says. You don't know the difference between good and evil when you boot up in your fallen nature. You need the word of God to have your senses of discernment trained to know the difference. And not only do you not know the difference, you know what invariably happens? You start calling evil good and good evil. And we got that in spades in our culture. 
It's being flipped, and those who fight for righteousness from God's perspective are considered evil. And those who fight for evil from God's perspective are considered righteous. And we're going to just go with the flow. That's the big question. What are we going to do about this? It's inherently incoherent. I'm not sure if you're getting what I'm saying here, but there's a way of thinking and talking that is complete nonsense that so many people, even Christians, hear and go, well, that's deep. When it's not, and don't be intimidated by stuff that sounds deep and that people are grabbing onto. Step back and ask yourself a question and put it through the lens of God's word if you think it's true or not. Listen to what William Borden wrote in his journal in 1910 as a student at Princeton. This is just astounding to me. He's one of my heroes too. Died at the age of 27 on the mission field after giving away most of his fortune that he inherited as a 27-year-old. Look what he wrote in 1910. Much more serious as a general agnostic. Agnostic means you don't have answers. Atmosphere, no knowledge. Pervading everything and deadening all convictions, those is the sin and truth included. In line with this, a broad spirit of tolerance is insisted upon, especially in matters of religion. And any and all are branded as narrow who dare think otherwise. That word narrow is one of Satan's deadliest weapons, it seems to me. For most people would apparently rather be shot than called narrow. I mean, the only heresy of our day is that there's heresy. That that actually exists. Now, what's crazy about this is people talk that tolerance is the greatest good, but very often they're the least tolerant people there are. They think you should be completely tolerant, but they lose that completely when you disagree with them. And so we've got to be people of loving, kind, compassionate, uh, gracious, truth-telling. I want you to know that if you're not telling the truth to people, even if they're going to hate you for it, you're not loving them well. And if you're not willing to see, receive truth, even if it conflicts with what's resonating with you at the moment, you're not seeking what's good for you. Jesus says this, that if you know him, you'll know the truth. And you know what the truth does? It sets you free. You want to be free? If you want to be free, you can't believe in lies. You know, I'm trying to work this stuff out constantly in my life. Listen how William Borden ends this. Thus it is even as Christ predicted. The broad way to destruction is thronged, but few are climbing the narrow way that leads to life. When we come to distinctly Christian and religious matters, the situation's even worse, he says. Few are climbing the narrow way that leads to life, as Jesus said. The, the way to destruction is thronged with people. But the narrow way that leads to freedom and life is not. And if you think the broad way is the way, you're just not listening to Jesus and what he says in this. You know, I'm trying to work this out in my church. These are some folks from my church. Some of our food bank workers, our servants who feed people every Friday, we a couple hundred families, groceries for the week every Friday and pray for them and minister to them. These are just a few of our food bank workers. I love them dearly. And I'm trying to work out the truth in love in this context. This is my family I live with on a daily basis, my incredible wife of 33 years, and my, um, my precious children, Caroline and Paige, and Sam and Isaac. I just love my kids, love them dearly. But I need you to know 
that being a compassionate truth teller is at the core of my life as a dad. Now, a friend of mine said, I didn't realize that being a dad is like 50% being an equipment manager, which is a lot of truth to that. But, but at the core of my life with four kids who were adopted, four kids who were abandoned, four kids who went through hard stuff is getting them to believe the truth. Now let me ask you something. I want to be sympathetic. I want to meet people where they are. I want to love people right where they are. But if one of my daughters comes to me and says, Daddy, I am ugly, what should I say? Should I say I affirm your experience? I, I sympathize. I, I, I can see why you would think this way. <laughs> I, I want to relate to you. I, I want to I give a heart if you were to say that on social media. right? I want to give you a thumbs up and a like and say, I'm, I'm there with you in your ugliness. No, is that what a loving dad would say? No, you know what I say and you know what I have said when they say things like that? Honey, that is a lie from the pit of hell. So let's send it right back where it came from. That's how I talk to my kids. And that's not unloving, that's not lacking compassion, that's calling a lie what it is and getting them to see their lives through the lens of truth. That's what I wanna do as a dad. I don't wanna meet them where they are to the point where I'm not speaking truth in their lives and, and denying the, the reality God says is true of them. Here's what we have in our day, a hyper-validation, hyper-validation. We validate it overboard, hyper-validation of personal subjective experience. We're even questioning someone's experience is unloving in the minds of many. Look, truth-tellers are going to be hated. That's what Jesus says. If the world hates you, know it's hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's part of the deal. If your main goal in life is being liked, is being affirmed, it's going to be really hard to follow Jesus, the man of sorrows, who was hated. He warns us that this is how it is. And I'm going to be dead and in the ground, and you're going to be facing persecution that my generation never saw. Are you going to be ready for that? Is, is that something you're going to be able to withstand because you're men and women of truth? And what is truth? Well, it's what aligns with God's character and his ways. And reality is the way things really are. And the way things really are, are how they are, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you wish it were differently or not. But we've got this idea that the human experience determines truth. It determines reality. And you know what the Bible says wisdom is? Recognizing God's character, recognizing what he says is true and real, and then conforming our lives to that. You know, the ancient world tried to get around reality through magic. You know how we do it? Technology. We think we got it all figured out through more and more technology, and humans can do some pretty impressive stuff, but if you think you can confound reality with human ingenuity and human effort, you don't understand reality. Eventually, reality will win. And, and this line I have for you, wisdom is, is to conform our lives to this, but, but 
this is what I want you to realize. Autonomy is self-governing and morally independent living. And this is really what sin is. It's trying to think you can live independently of God. And ontology is the way things really are. The whole area of philosophy is studying how things are. That's how they are. That's what ontology studies, how things really are. And this phrase at the bottom is one I got from an author, and it's this. Ontology always trumps autonomy. You may want to be autonomous, free of any limitations outside of yourself, but you're a finite creature, and you answer to God for how you live your life. And so ontology, how things really are, always trumps autonomy. That's worth memorizing and conforming your life to because God is the perfect, holy, truthful, faithful creator. He's the all-wise, unchanging creator. And Jesus prays for us, and he says, make them holy. Make those who follow me holy. And we're going to talk about holiness this weekend. And then he says, sanctify them. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. We've got to be men and women of God's word if we're followers of Jesus. If you're not a Christian here this weekend, I am so deeply thankful you're here. And I hope you feel the freedom to ask really good questions of Johnny and me or, or, or any, anybody here who you came with. And, and so we can get somewhere closer to truth because the truth sets you free. And I don't want to live a life without freedom and life and the one who says he's the way, the truth, and the life. I've asked Johnny to come up. I just wanna, I wanna dialogue a bit. I, I wanna just talk about what it means to get these ideas true and home to us. So I've asked Johnny to come up. I just wanna um, have a conversation. I want for us to, to mix up a little bit and then hear from you if you have any questions, uh, any, any pushback. This is a time to do that. It's a great size group. This is, this is uh, not that bigger than some classes I teach at Biola, so this is a great size. But, but what do you think? You know, in the Wesleyan tradition, they used to have exhorters. The preacher would be done, and then an exhorter would come up and basically say, did you hear what he said? Say, Tom, you especially needed to hear that. And, and it would, yeah, so Johnny could be the exhorter, and, and we could just, just interact, first with each other and then you guys. Well, yeah, well, if you guys have questions, be thinking of those. Eric, I appreciate what you said. Um, you know, I was just even thinking through the, how the nature of truth, and maybe you can punctuate this, that truth is not always debunked. It's almost uh, perceived incredulously or, like, suspicious, and there, there, there's this element of skepticism where you're an idiot if you believe in it. So it's not contradicted. It's right. if you believe this, you're actually naive can you talk about how that's presented in the world that we live yeah, in today? Yeah, so it's not just naive. It's gotten to the point where, where you're really part of the problem, the problem of our society with a bigoted, intolerant. And I think it's so important for us to realize that, that if God has not spoken, the perspective I've been trying to confront tonight is actually true. If God hasn't spoken... All I've got is my little limited perspective. That's it. That's all I got. And maybe I can gather some friends who agree with me on this, but this idea that I can then uh, speak for everybody or proclaim truth as some objective morality or reality that everybody should recognize and cohere to, that's what we do when we preach as Christians. We really do believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We really do believe the ways and wisdom of God leads to life, and the counter view leads to death. 
And, and so because God has spoken, we break out of our little limited perspective and we have the perspective of our creator. And, and so it's really important for people to realize that, that I don't think I have truth because I'm so smart or I figured it all out because I'm all that. But no, I, I've received from God what he says is true. Now we can talk about the veracity of, or truthfulness of this, but everybody's got a basis for truth, everybody. Right? So what's yours is what I say to people. The Bible's my basis for the answer to the biggest questions of life. What's yours? Sometimes it's just that 10th grade English teacher who had a huge impact on somebody, right? Or a mixture of Freud or Marx or Nietzsche or, or just kind of their family morals that they grew up. Whatever it is, what's your basis for truth? And now we can compare those. I've never seen anything close to the truthfulness and plausibility of the Bible's explanation of reality. And so, but at least we got to acknowledge what our basis of truth is and not consider other people as evil in themselves if they oppose these things, but representing things that aren't true. So we love individuals, we love people, but we oppose lies at the same time. You know, I think it's a, a good thought. You know, when you think about the most timeless war that's ever been waged is a war against the truth. The first question asked in the Bible was, what, anybody know? Did God really say? Before the serpent asked that question, there were only answers. So when you think about it, the first question in the Bible is a question that was designed to cast doubt that the truth is clear, unambiguous, and demanding on your life. And so that's really what you see today. There's nothing new. It's a strategy that is the oldest strategy used by Satan and used by the world since page three of your Bible. Did God really say? And so that's the environment that we live in, is did God really say this about the truth, about human sexuality, about marriage, about holiness, about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? You know, I um, was doing an interview recently, and uh, they take two different, uh, like, opposites, like a, a homosexual couple and a Christian uh, married man and wife, and they pair them up, and they do these moderated panel discussions. And I was partnered to go against a, it's like a three-hour news kind of thing, and I was partnered with a pastor's kid who had recently deconstructed mm. He went to a Christian university or in name, kind of like the quotes you use up there. And he says he no longer believes in any type of truth. And then you just begin to see, you, you called it nonsensical. And I think that's important to understand because nonsensical is when you eliminate all the elements of truth, there is no true standard for living. So I just said, hey, well, what if I walked into a gas station and I blew a guy's head, head off? What would you say? Is that wrong? Because if there's no standard, there can be no truth and there can be no measure of right or wrong. I said, so what if I walked into a gas station and blew a guy's head off? Is that right or wrong? He goes, well, it depends. Why did you do it? And I just looked at him, and it's on film. And I think it'll come out in a few months. And he said, and I said, he asked me why I did it. And I said, well, his name was Johnny as well. And I said, for the sheer pleasure of killing. Is that wrong? And he looks at me and goes, I can't say that's wrong. But I can say it's not productive to the society we live in. And that's one of the things you're going to hear more and more. People aren't going to say something's right or wrong. They're going to say, this doesn't make me feel safe. It's not productive. Or it doesn't make me feel secure. Mm -hmm. Because if there's no right or wrong, there's nothing else. So I said, okay, well, let's say I see a, a bunch of kids on a sidewalk, and I take my, 
ram 1500 and mow them over. Is that wrong? He says, why do you love it? Why'd you do it? And I said, because I hate kids. And he looks at me and he goes, again, I just can't say it's wrong. I can say it's not productive. So what's interesting is that even though statistically the Ligonier just did the state of theology, I think they said that over half professing Christians don't believe that there is an absolute truth. So if there's an a no absolute truth, you pull that thread and you pull that thread, all of a sudden everything in our world unravels. You know, used to argue for um, just thinking even with like a, the subject of abortion, you know, they used to be able to try to, they, they used to bioethicists try to prove that it was a baby in the womb. And now 99% of bioethicists no longer argue that it's not a baby in the womb, that life does begin at conception. They say um, it is a human, but it's not a person yeah. because they can't contribute. And so what you're seeing in our society, in our world is truth unravels. And once truth unravels, life no longer makes sense. And so I thought that was a great start for our weekend, Eric. You know, I, I'm wondering, do you guys have any questions about this? Because I'm sure that even as we navigate truth, some of you guys maybe live in an environment where truth is bigoted, intolerant, and hating. So you know, questions? I just want to say yeah. something about the guy you were talking to. I really appreciate his willingness to be logically consistent with yeah. a relativistic morality. Most people aren't that courageous to yeah. be consistent. They'll, they'll sort of say, no, of course it isn't, but, but they don't have a basis for that. So at least I appreciate the willingness to say, yeah, it, I'm going to stay consistent with my relativism to the point where I can't say anything's ultimately wrong. That's refreshing almost. You know? It is refreshing. And I think one of the things, too, when you walk into a, the average secular university is going to make you, would, would make Christian feel dumb. You know, I can't believe you believe that. And Eric used the word nonsensical, but once you eradicate the idea of truth, all of life is nonsensical. Because if everything's relative and there is no absolute truth, then there is no absolute purpose. You're a grown-up germ, a cosmic accident. And maybe, yeah, why, why are we even here? So it does evaporate very quickly. Any questions for Eric or on any of the things that he's touched on? I think that would be the goal of this weekend, not just to maybe fire you up or have you know, things that you walk away convicted over, but even that your questions are answered. So anything in that regard? Yeah, uh, go ahead. Great question. Tell me your name. Austin. Austin, I love your question. And here's what I found. It's like my son. He's assuming everybody's going to look down on him. And it's the opposite. They've been waiting for someone to speak some sort of life-giving truth with a smile and hope and some clarity that actually is tapping into something deep within themselves because they're made in God's image and because of his common grace. I find that I sell people so short and I assume they're gonna respond so negatively. But if they know that I really genuinely care about them and I speak to them, even in a, a passing interaction, I've been astounded how interested people are in hearing somebody with conviction. I mean, if it's not me, it's gonna be the next rapper or the next influencer, right, who's gonna get a hold of people with the way they think. And so, so we've gotta be 
courageous in a world where there are plenty of people preaching. You know, my favorite rapper, Shy Lin, he's got a line in one of his songs, everybody's preaching. The only question is, what's your sermon about? And it's true, everybody's got something that they think life is all about. And so I've been amazed at how, yeah, there could be pushback, but the majority of the time, I, I'm just so encouraged by how people genuinely want to talk about ideas with somebody who's thought about stuff. Because most people don't think beyond one question, if that. And so when somebody's actually thought about stuff and, and there's a, a joy that goes along with that, people find it compelling. They really do. I've been so encouraged. Nine times out of ten when, when I've talked to people about things that, out of a, a heart of conviction. Yeah. Yeah, I had a question. If you guys have any advice as far as how to have productive conversation with people who uh, seem like they're straying away from biblical truth as far as like disagree with, uh, with the Bible. So tell me your name again. Caleb. Caleb. So straying away from biblical truth, so you're saying they're... They're a Christian, but yeah. they're drifting. Maybe like just productive ways to have these conversations, just get into the practical of like, how do you tell someone that, hey. Yeah, so what I want, I didn't want to use the name of that influential author and artist, but he's not a Christian anymore. He will not say, he, he will say, no, nah, I'm not. He was still claiming to be a Christian when he wrote that stuff, but that's clear red flags. The guy's starting to drift. And, and so often, it's amazing to me how often these drifts, I have a friend who was a youth pastor for years and kids would come back after their freshman year in college and they're like, oh, I'm wrestling with the problem of evil and the existence of God and all this stuff. And through the years, he'd engage him on these philosophical levels and deep, complex apologetics issues. But you know what he started doing eventually when a guy would come back from college like that? You know what he started saying? So what's her name? And he'd say, what are you talking about? The, the woman you're sleeping with, what's her name? And he'd say, how'd you know? And he said, I've been doing this a long time. It's amazing how often we have all these, did God really say, when we just want to do what we want to do, and that's not God's way. Now, I'm not minimizing the legit questions people actually have. I, I would never do that. But so often, it's just not liking feeling restricted by God's wise laws in my life. And so I'm going to figure out a way to live how I want to live in spite of what God says very often is what it is. And so, so this guy I, I quoted before, he ends up walking entirely away from the Christian faith. Now he's sort of this Hindu, quasi, New Age sort of thing. But, but I, I would want to do it with a sense of urgency that isn't like, oh, cool, you're eating. So, so you respect people and you genuinely are interested in their ideas, but, but you want them to know that they're swimming away from the lifeboat. They're swimming toward death when they swim away from Jesus. And you know what? I've never heard someone who walks away from the faith say, they say, I, I can't follow a God who would tell my gay friends they can't be gay, or I could never follow a God who would send anybody to hell. Or I've never heard anybody say, I'm not a Christian anymore because I no longer find Jesus beautiful. I no longer find Jesus trustworthy. I know f it, 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 and so I'm thinking, so what was it for you at the core in the first place? And that's what I want to do, talk about Jesus, that we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And is his glory no longer found there for you? But it, it's so often on the ethical categories that people walk away. So I'd want to make it about Jesus and, and I wouldn't want to assume their surface questions are the deep issues going on. You got anything? Uh, 
I think in regards to a drifting from the truth, I think that's probably the right word you talked to, you said, you know, if you look at Proverbs, there's rarely anybody who goes all of a sudden, I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist. So there's a couple of realities. In Proverbs, it talks about how the fool drifts, meanders, and is the wayward huh. because they get hardened. And we know from Hebrews that they're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what Eric said, I think, is accurate because ultimately, most of the people I know that have walked away from the Lord have been in, you know, I'd say typically, not in a, a blanket statement, have been in a season of sin and, and use that as a difficulty and sin does harden your heart. And I also think even when you look at the seven letters in Revelation, the toleration of false teaching and the longer you're in that or in the longer that you're in a lukewarm environment, you no longer see the need for the truth. And so when, if you're in a church that doesn't believe anybody's going to hell, doesn't, you know, everything's fine, let's just try to appease the culture, then there's no longer any need for it. You need the truth when you're in an environment that uh, you have a supreme sense of God's holiness, his transcendence, his justice, and then you're crying out for a solution. But that's part of the reason why so many people ask, why do so many students leave the church at 18? It's because they never had an opportunity to reject Jesus at 15 because everyone was trying to make Jesus so palatable to them so they oh. didn't reject him when they were 15. Oh, and so at good. 18, they begin to ask questions. They start to struggle with sin. I've always been in the truth. I've never understood this. And so um, I think that's probably a, a big component of it too is lukewarm youth groups that try to just hold on to students as long as they can and so that eventually they'll just get stuck at church. I believe strongly that churches need to confront average 13, 14 year olds with the reality that their sin is an offense to God and give them a predicament that Jesus is the solution to instead and of And what this. you said before that Jesus invites you to come and die. Yeah, I mean, come to die. Yeah. So I think that would be a, a significant component, Caleb. That's good. Anything else, maybe one more? Yeah, go ahead. Is homosexuality a sin? Uh, yes, it would be a sin, um, 1 Corinthians 6. And I think there's a few ways to answer that. So I think one thing to say in regarding any sort of question and answer format, and then you can piggyback off this, Eric. I never want the brevity of the answer to not include the tone and grace and kindness that Jesus would. Meaning that this isn't whack-a-mole Bible trivia time where I say, yes, affirmative. Uh, but what the Bible does teach is to live in a homosexual lifestyle is a sin because God created man and woman to be together. First Corinthians 6 lays that out very clearly. Romans 1 does, but then it says, such were some of you. So God is in the business of saving sexual sinners. And then maybe what would be a differentiating point in that regard is, can you struggle with that and still be in the faith? Can you experience same-sex attraction? And I would say, I know believers that struggle with same-sex attraction, but it's whether or not they indulge in that temptation and that reality. So can you live in an ongoing habitual lifestyle of any sin and have confidence of your salvation? No. One thing I would say in regards to sexual sin, all sin separates us from God, but not all sin is the same. So when we're talking about sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6 says, every other sin is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against himself because we're bodies and temples of the Holy Spirit. So sexual sin is worth understanding and it's worth knowing how to defend biblically. We can talk more about this, but yes, and God is in the business of saving sexual sinners of all sorts and of all kinds. But the Bible is not clear or unclear or ambiguous about how it defines that. Anything to add on that regard? Yeah, I, I think your point of the difference between same-sex attraction, we, we all have disordered desires of all kinds. I certainly do every day of my life where I, I'm inclined to love things more than God. And so that's an idolatry. And so, so we can have... 
disordered desires, but the question is, what do we do with them? I've been impatient as long as I can remember. My mother said I was born impatient. She remembers me as a toddler, just uh, never wanting to wait for anything. And I would not want you to affirm my impatience. I would not want you to, to um, you know, call me, oh, he's one of those impatient Christians or, or anything like that. I would want you to, to love me, to be patient with me in my impatience, but call me to the fruit of the spirit of patience. And so, so I have an inclination to impatience. It's, it's probably the sin I battle most. And so how would you relate to me in that impatience? I hope it would be, like I said, kindly and compassionately, but you'd call me to what God calls me to and not affirm that in me because it comes so naturally to me. And so we've got to do a great job of loving people and compassionately walking with them and alongside them and at the same time opposing a, a revolution that's going on in the area of truth. And, and a main part of that is a sexual revolution away from God's intended design, which is to glorify himself through relationship sexually between a man and a woman in marriage. That's his ideal. You know, it's, it's interesting that Christians are seen so behind the times with homosexuality in our view of that. When premarital sex, like Christians believe you shouldn't have sex before you're married. So I, I barely knew any Christians growing up. I went to a big state university, I played football. And my football playing friends, when they found out that my wife and I, when we were dating in college, weren't having sex, they thought we were aliens. I mean, they thought there was something so weird and bizarre and wrong with us. Like, like are you okay, they'd say. And like, we were from another planet. And, and then we got married right after college and my friends would say, why are you getting married so young? And they'd be like, Oh yeah, I understand now, right? I've almost forgot. And so, so there are all kinds of things that we're, we're weirdos about, uh, and sexual morality is one of those, but, but that's what God calls us to, and that's the right and best way. So yeah, even though the culture is increasingly affirming all sorts of things, there are still things they draw lines on, even sexually, right? There's still laws based on those sexual lines they draw. But but those are moving all the time. And there's no good rationale for any boundaries because the sexual ethic of our day is mutual consent. As long as two people agree that this is good, it's good, even if the behavior is not. And so, so we've got to go to God who invented sex, who invented male and female for his glory and for our joy. And we divert from his way of joy if we take any other path but the clear one he's given us in his word. Last one, tell me your name. Carl. Carl, it's my brother's name. We fought a lot, so I'm working through some issues for you right now, Carl. Um, so how should we as Christians, uh, as truth-telling Christians uh, in professional academic environments, like dealing with college professors or employers that might pressure us to go into a more, uh, uh, what is it, truthless compassion rally? Yeah. How do we deal with that and stand our ground as truth-telling Christians in an environment where it might cost us yeah, so just to, I want to repeat the question because yeah, I don't think everyone yeah. heard. So in the various environments we're in, whether it's academics or professional, how do we be truth-telling Christians when people we work with, even people above us in that, uh, just ain't copacetic with that? Yeah, that, that's the question. So, yeah, I, I think we do it again as, as, as kind, loving, joyful, grateful people 
who people will look at and find something compelling in simply who we are. The Bible calls it the, 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 the fragrance of Christ. And lead with Jesus. I don't want to lead with all the things the world wants me to lead with. I want to lead with Jesus. That's what I want people to know me for, is Jesus. And so I, I want to make him the main topic of conversation every step along the way, if I'm able. Uh, but to do it out of a life and a heart that's really loving, that's very... People have a hard time believing you can love someone genuinely who vehemently disagrees with you because they have a hard time doing that. But we Christians are the ones who love our enemies. Jesus loves the people killing him. So because we are capable of that, it's hard for them to believe that. But we need to really do a great job with that. So oppose lies because we love people. Here's the battle I fight. I don't want to love being right. I want to love righteousness. I want to love the glory of God. And his ways lead to his glory. And so, so I want to have a God-centered view that's not an Eric-centered. I don't want to win an argument. I don't want to win a debate. I want God to be glorified in this person's life and for them to find life in him. That's where it goes. Great questions, people. We knew it. We knew you'd bring it. And you are. Love it. Lord, we're thankful that you're here with us. We thank you that you are the God of truth and that your son you sent is the truth and the spirit who he sent is the spirit of truth who leads us into truth. And Lord, I pray that's exactly what he would be doing in each of our lives this weekend. Lord, you know us perfectly, better than we know ourselves, and you know exactly what we need to draw us closer to you and transform us the ways you want to. So we pray that... The Spirit would be filling our sails and your word would be guiding uh, as the rudder of the ship where we go. And so, Lord, please be working in each of us. Lord, I pray that you would be helping us all, every one of us, to be drawing closer to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.